This is the Author Archive podcast. I have been reading a book called The Caliph and the Imam by Dr. Toby Matheson. It's 890 pages. Dr. Matheson, welcome. Um, Why do you write as you do, about religion in the Arab world. What is it about that twangs your heartstrings? Well, religion is an important topic anywhere, but in certain places it's more overtly important still, and in others uh, it's more sort of uh, hidden, uh, perhaps. Um, But it, it of course, has informed much of what we do in in, in most places uh, for very long periods of of time and um, of course politicized religion has over the past few decades played an enormous role in international affairs and and so on and so forth and uh, not just in the arab world uh, but um, i basically became interested in this broader topic after 9-11 and the 2003 intervention in iraq and so on and so forth so it is from then on that you know religious politics um, you know takes on this this incredibly important dimension the book is called The Caliph and the Imam. Why are those two words, those two people, I suppose, uh, why do they define the idea? Because they are the two archetypes of political and religious authority that um, separates uh, Sunnism and Shiism. So um, what later became known as the Sunnis wanted a caliph to succeed the Prophet Muhammad, and who later became known as the Shia, wanted an imam, an offspring of the Prophet, to to rule politically and to hold spiritual authority. And when did this break out? Well, directly after the death of the Prophet, um, who didn't have a male uh, heir, and so this question arose uh, immediately. As I show in the book, of course, you know, it takes many centuries for those terms to, you know, take on the meanings that that they have later on. I mean, this this argument, this schism has got huge longevity. They've been going at it for over a thousand years. Indeed, yes. Um, And is it healing or is it getting worse? At this particular moment, it's actually a bit better than it was just a few years ago. Um, if you remember, uh, a few years ago, you know, ISIS was attacking especially Shia, uh, uh, you know, mosques and, and places and the, the wars in Syria and in Yemen and so on and so forth had very strong sectarian overtones. I mean, I think in the pandemic and, you know, all the countries started to be, you know, dealing with, with completely new issues and, and other issues. And so so much of it has, has reduced a little bit. Also sort of the very strong religious dynamics in the Gulf in Saudi Arabia have been toned down a bit. Um, uh, and Iran is, is, is preoccupied with its own protest movement that, that doesn't, where the Sunni-Shi issue uh, is not a major factor. So at the moment, it's a bit better than than it was just a few years ago. But what is it that defines these two? You see, you explain to me how it happened, um, but why does it continue? Because most schisms, people get bored and other things happen and life goes on. How is it that this fire still burns? 
Well, because, you know, in principle, the, you know, the sort of theological um, arguments and um, sort of the doctrinal um, differences, um, I mean, they are no, not in and of themselves a cause of, uh, you know, of, of hostility. They don't need to be. But over the centuries, they became uh, institutionalized in, in almost two separate, I mean, they're not like churches in the Christian context, but still, you know, they're a set of of institutions that teach clerics, you know, there's a set of books, uh, uh, I mean, a huge set of books, um, uh, canons uh, and ways of doing things um, that that are uh, different. And over the centuries, they became sort of fundamental to, to particular political to empires that define themselves more with one or with the other, and then to modern nation states uh, where the majority is either one uh, or the other. So um, in a sense, like in Europe, where often a dominant form of Christianity, you know, is, is important in, in, in a particular nationalism or in a national story, the same thing in a sense happened in the Islamic world. And that explains why this is so relevant uh, until today. Um, in the Christ Christian tradition, it is traditional that um, various churches break off and you'll get some like the Baptists who think it's only real if you if you're totally immersed in water, uh, and so is there a parallel in the world of which you write where it's only real if you do this? Yes, I mean one key difference is that really the split happened, uh, you know, at the outset uh, of Islam, right after the death of the Prophet. So it's it's different in that sense from Christianity. Um, but much later, you had, of course, you have uh, revivalist movements, fundamentalist movements that that want to go back to the early period. So for example, the Wahhabi movement that emerges in the 18th century and has been so uh, important in Saudi Arabia and and elsewhere, they want to go back to the basics or fundamentals of the religion. Um, but of course, if you do that, you have to choose what part of the, the original you know, canon do you go back to. And because it's in that early period where this split happened, any sort of, uh, you know, revivalist movement uh, had to also take a stance on this original split and often actually made it worse because they often adopted a sort of Sunni fundamentalist view um, and then the Shia also had their revivalist movements, which were strongly Shia. Um, so uh, these sort of, you know, Puritans, if you like, um, have often, in a sense, exacerbated uh, the issue in, in later periods. What was the character of the prophet? I'm just thinking, what would the prophet make of all of this? I mean, I'm not really, uh, you know, the person, uh, I think, to answer this, um, but I, I, I mean, he, of, I, I mean, I, I doubt that he would have wanted uh, his followers to, to, to split um, uh, in this way. And is it the politics that keeps it going? You see, I'm fascinated by what people believe. I mean, the people who promulgate Wahhabism, do they really think that that's the way forward? The people in Afghanistan at the moment who deny education to girls, do they really believe that this is a good thing? How much is it belief and how much is it power? I think it's the relationship between the two. But in certain contexts, it has also taken on a form of sort of social practice. Um, uh, you know, in, 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 in previous centuries, 
people would often live in uh, in in urban quarters or in villages where you would generally not interact very much with people of a different confession because they might have lived you know somewhere else and so stereotypes um you know have taken root um of of what the other people were like or or would do um uh, uh you know as had happened in Europe uh, as well so it's not necessarily uh, always about beliefs these days um and uh, of course you know a lot of the sort of political rivalries um you know we we can really doubt if a lot of the the men usually who who are responsible for for a lot of the sort of sectarian politics and sectarian violence of the past decades if they were real believers um uh, it's also served an important uh, you know function political function to instrumentalize um these these you know these identities um uh, and it's often been quite easy to say well you know those others you know they're they're sort of bad because of their uh, sectarian identity what is it that um islam promises the follower if you if you're a christian uh, and you follow a particular line um it offers you eternal life in heaven uh providing you've done all the stuff um what does the uh follower of islam what does the muslim get if they do it right and there's two ways of doing it right but do they get it what do they get i mean this is not really the topic uh, of the book but um i mean in in some ways sort of you know salvation is is not dissimilar um uh, in islam than than it is in, in in christianity and 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 ideas of the afterlife and so on and so forth yeah what's going on in my head is uh, one of the chapters is about what happened in 1979 when khomeini came back yeah. um and it, you talk about 9/11 and there seems to be built in this idea that if you sacrifice yourself um you get something um the idea of um well, suicide i suppose i mean 911 the guys what did they think they were getting um the followers of many what do they think they're getting um isis what do they think they're getting so uh, it seems that it's promulgated by a belief um and and a passion and a sort of irrational passion well this is uh you know it's might be a bit of reductionist way of 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 seeing things i mean in the iranian revolution um you know it's it's really a product of its time the late 1970s um and it really grew out of sort of radical networks across the region that were very strongly also connected to um you know uh, militant left wing movements um for example in lebanon in palestine um across the arab world really and and those were strongly connected to to global um movements where actually uh, sort of martyrdom uh, for the cause um had already um you know was also prominent so the Iranian revolution in in many ways incorporated uh you know is is interesting because it is a sort of you know in its rhetoric it it takes up a lot of sort of the old leftist rhetoric of like anti-imperialism uh and so on and so forth and sacrifice for the cause and it later influenced the uh, you know you know militant movements on on both the sunni and shi uh spectrums how aware are these two strands of history 
Um, the end of your book, there is a really good, interesting chapter for the layperson. Every place is Kabbalah. Now, I didn't know about Kabbalah, but presumably those uh, involved in uh, Sunnism and Shiism know about Kabbalah. So how aware does the follower have to be of the history? Yeah, I would say one of the themes of the book is really how, you know, the early period, you know, the original conflict and split are taken up in later periods and, you know, revitalized and revisited and, and you know, in new media forms taken up and, and you know, how people memorize this. And Karbala is really sort of the original, it's the place where the, you know, Hussein, the grandson of the prophet, uh, died also a, 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 a death, the death of a martyr. Um, so uh, it is true that the, that concept uh, is, is strong there. And especially the Shia think, you know, this was a great um, crime committed by what would become the Sunni caliphate. So it's sort of the original, you know, the original conflict. Um, uh, and um, in the Iranian revolution, that that term that you just mentioned, or, you know, the sentence, you know, every um, every uh, day is, is Ashura and every place is Karbala became sort of the rallying cry of the, the, the crowds. And it means sort of bringing back this sort of, you know, the early period into the present and uh, I guess learning lessons from it and and, and mobilizing the masses uh, by referring to that sort of early, early period. How do all of these structures, how do they survive in the modern world? where we've got um, communication like we're talking now. Mm. But we know, um, you know, since Darwin, um, we know about telescopes. We know about the structure of the universe. Um, if you're wanting to go back over a thousand years, you're going back to a world that is much less enlightened and much less knowledgeable. Do, do the traditions deny modernity? Well, I mean, religious movements and, and, and sort of actors have been very good at using uh, new media and, and new technologies. I mean, you know, this all very, very efficient at bringing this message across on, on the Internet, on satellite television, on, on your phone and, and so on and so forth and, and have connected. So in, in many ways, new media has led to sort of global communities, global religious communities that didn't exist before, connecting places and, and people in the diaspora and, and migrants to a sort of core narrative. So in some ways, you know, they have profited from our sort of globalized uh, world. But what about the science behind it? What's the what's the relationship between Sunnis, Shias and um, and science, the modern world, just the mechanics of it and the knowledge well, I mean, they take part in it as as everybody uh, else, and um, uh, you know, many of the sort of you know, there are many interesting debates about um, uh, you know, genetic research, for example, um, uh, you know, that that the clerics sanction, where sometimes they're even further ahead than 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 what we allow in 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 Europe, um, uh, but. Um, you know, modernity is a very loaded concept and not not, you know, outside of sort of, you know, Europe, uh, people experience modernity in a very different way. And, and you know, one of the things that I do in the book is show how 
European empires in the 18th and 19th century, you know, colonized uh, much of the Muslim world and, um, you know, brought the modern state to those regions. Um, uh, and, and uh, but that is what sort of often the modernity that people encountered was sort of, you know, a British colonial officer and a British judge, uh, yes. you know, and, and those judges, for example, in India, you know, they had sort of uh, uh, translations made of, of local legal texts. And then they would ask, you know, so are you a Sunni or a Shia? And depending on what people said, um, they would sort of be, be treated differently. So for inheritance, for example. And so, you know, modernity played a big role in institutionalizing um, these categories, but uh, wasn't always seen only positively by by everyone. And that's when you had a sort of, Muslim revivalism, for example, um, emerging in part against that sort of colonial uh, presence and modernity somehow. Uh, but again, those Muslim revivalists themselves relied, for example, on on newspaper, uh, on printing technology that the British um, uh, brought to Egypt, for example. So it was very important newspapers moving between India and Egypt on British steamboats um, to to sort of bring bring together a sense of of you know Muslim togetherness and also the Muslim world under threat. So things are much more connected um, uh, than sometimes we we want to believe or or you know we we allow uh, 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 you know. Yeah. Um, I can see you as you tell me this. I can see you smiling. To produce this nearly 900-page book, um, it's it's a mammoth work. You've obviously spent years doing it. As you've examined this in huge and accessible detail, have you emerged um, with an overriding pessimism, or do you find yourself optimistic despite I mean, I'm in a sense happy that I finished this book because it, <laughs> yes. it largely uh, it, it sort of emerged in response to I, I would keep getting questions when I talked about, you know, related topics, you know, but but what about this and what about that? And when did it start? And, and didn't it start with the Iranian Revolution or with the Iraq War or was it the colonial period or wasn't it the Safavids and the Ottomans or, or was it all from the outset at Karbala? And so what I try to do is, in a sense, take the the explanations, the easy explanations that that people have sort of in their minds of this Sunni-Shi relationship, and um, uh, you know, also look at the different regions, how they connect, how does the Middle East connect to India, for example, and try to come up with a sort of you know fairly cohesive uh, narrative. And <laughs> now it's out, so in that sense, I'm I'm quite happy. Yeah. <laughs> but what about the world? Um, the world. As... <laughs> well, this, you know, I mean, religions can be a force for good, too. It's not really, you know, of course, religious violence is, is it can be the most horrific, uh, you know, thing. Um, but um, I think the book also shows that there were many places and periods where Muslims could coexist and had no trouble and in fact, uh, shared a lot of practices. Um, uh, for example, um, you know, they 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 worshipped the family of the prophet in 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 many places, and this might have actually been a sort of really you know common religiosity amongst all 
um, you know, all people who lived, uh, who lived, uh, you know, for example, in Syria and 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 in Iraq, even non-Muslims sort of went to the same shrines. So uh, there are, um, you know, there are as many. I mean, this this is book is also a story of coexistence, not just of polarization. And how is that coexistence now? Uh, we're talking at the end of February, twenty twenty three. Um, is is coexistence? how it is or are the people still saying well let's bring back the caliphate uh where are we well a few years ago as i mentioned i mean people definitely did uh, say we should bring back the caliphate and and you know the emergence of of isis and and you know the establishment of you know short-lived islamic state in iraq and syria that was a that was a huge thing i mean um, and this was a very sectarian state. I mean, it 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 uh, uh, it went against everyone who didn't conform to its particular interpretation of of Sunnism, and uh, uh, that was a very worrying development. And I think, um, I mean, ISIS based itself on the original Saudi model. I mean, they used textbooks from Saudi Arabia, and they wanted to emulate was what what was the first Saudi state in the 18th century, sort of state formation in which clerics played a huge role and which was very, very Puritan. Um, and I think in, and it had a certain popularity in Saudi Arabia and in the Gulf, this idea. But I think it's partly also in response to this sort of ex very extreme overdrive that um, Saudi Arabia, under the sort of you know new leadership, now moved away in in many ways from this Wahhabi tradition. And uh, this break with the Wahhabi tradition in Saudi Arabia and sort of stop for for funding of uh, of of Wahhabi of Wahhabism at at home and abroad. That is quite a significant uh, change, and it means that um, in in many places where where this funding you know used to go, there is now not as much available. I mean, the the ideas are out there, but um, uh, it's it's not as emphasized as it used to be. Um, Saudi Arabia still doesn't like Iran, and the two still don't get along. But it's, it's less sectarian discourse, you know, saying, "Well, the other ones are unbelievers and don't." deserve to to live uh uh that that sort of is prominent you know now I mean, that, we go back to more nationalist arguments and and maybe that is a i think that is a good thing because uh before you know the most extreme sort of narratives would literally say you know you are an unbeliever you don't you you, you have to be killed you know you deserve to die so that's that that was not uh that was not good i mean that seems a trifle extreme um, I mean, I, I, I was appalled. Um, I mean, in Saudi Arabia, you're a woman, therefore you can't drive a car. Um, in Afghanistan, you're a girl, so you can't go to school. Um, it, it all seems horribly irrational. Yes, but, you know, again, what the book is trying to show is that it's also really about, you know, Western interventions in the Islamic world. So, I mean, uh, the colonial period was so important in first setting up the boundaries of the states and then in institutionalizing often a sort of sectarian representative system, like in Lebanon, uh, you know, or in parts of, you know, in other parts. Um, and it was really the uh, interventions in Iraq and Afghanistan in, you know, in the 2000s that set the stage for this whole mess that that we're in and uh, in Iraq uh, the you know the the Americans and the Brits really made the same mistakes as a century earlier the, the colonial powers had done a century earlier 
by saying, well, you're either a Sunni or a Shia or a Kurd, and each group gets so and so many seats, and that's how we're going to run the country. And it's just turned out that this is a ter terrible idea uh, of running the country. And in Afghanistan, a similar system was institutionalized. And, you know, now you have the Taliban, you know, took over Afghanistan again. The whole thing was an utter failure. And Iraq is also a complete mess. So, um, Again, these developments are all entangled, and and in, in part, you know, uh, uh, you know, people are, you know, officials uh, in 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 Europe and the United States are also to blame, as are academics who who have sometimes supported this, um, uh, or or didn't criticize it enough at the time. Okay, you're a leading academic in this field. What's what's your recipe? I <laughs> yes, but I, I have the advantage that I was fairly young. I mean, I was still a student at the time when you know when these things happened. So yeah, but uh, you but you're grown up now, Toby. So what? Up, yes. Yeah. So what do we do? Well, we try not to make the same mistakes again. At least learn a little bit from 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 what didn't work. Um, uh, so uh, I mean, one of the problems, of course, is 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 um, uh, yeah. I mean, is military intervention without a proper plan i mean this 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 went this went uh, you know it's now 20 years since the invasion of of iraq uh, this month uh, uh, next month will be 20 uh, years so i think it's it's an important moment to sort of um, consider the lessons of of what went wrong and how it really led to to a lot of the disasters that the region Faced. And I mean, the rise of IS is un, un, unthinkable without uh, without the invasion of Iraq 20 years ago. So now the establishment of its caliphate. So, yeah. Um, last question. This is a major book. Who have you written it for? Um, because I, you know, I read newspapers, I read books. But this was diving into a world where really... Um, I, I was lost from time to time. So who is who is this book for? Well, I try to keep it as simple as possible. Yeah, I know. <laughs> while also while also doing justice to you know thousands four hundred years of of history in a, a you know a vast geographical um, part of the world. Um, so the end notes are at the end, for example, that should help with 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 yes. some readability. Oh no! I, I, what I ask is and, not a criticism. What it is is no. You sit down. With I this know book. it's it's it is quite long. I mean, I try to keep it as brief as possible. But the thing is, you know, you don't want to. There have been many books that jump to quick conclusions, you know, and and that uh, take one of these hypotheses that I mentioned before, you know blame everything on Karbala or on sort of, you know, the, the Ottomans and Safavids or the colonial period or the Iraq war, and then just go with that uh, narrative. I try to point out the connections between periods and sort of how the earlier conflicted narratives were taken up later. Um, and to do that, you just need a certain amount of, um, you know, time and, and space and, uh, I know there are, you know, different, you know, there was quite a lot of places and 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 names, um, but um, they do hang together. Um, and uh, I've written it for a lay audience, 
um, for students, um, but also I wanted it to be, um, you know, a, a, a book that other academics and, and sort of interested readers, people who read history books, can refer to. And so the notes are extensive. You know, if if students or or, or other you know academics want to want to follow on a, a certain topic, they can do so through the end notes. Well, I hope you'll be taken up uh, and asked to be a guest at all the literary festivals, because um, to have this stuff explained to you, I think is wonderful. So congratulations on the book, The Caliph and the Imam by Toby Matheson. Great to meet you, Toby. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here.